Today um, marks almost, it's a few days from now, the 10th anniversary of the passing of our esteemed Rosh Hashiva, Rav Yudami Talzatzal. And as you saw, if you already saw the source sheet that the shiur is being given in his memory, it's actually being given, being given, and this is one of the beautiful things about being part of a community, it's being given over the course of this week internationally. Shiurim are being given, uh, in normal cases, Drashot will be given on Shabbat, but nobody's doing much Drashot on Shabbat these days. The people are giving their, their Shiurim and Drashot, etc., in memory of Rav Amital. So just a couple of things about Rav Amital, and then we'll get into the Shiur, but I, I actually had a whole different topic in mind. When I realized this was coming to the week of his yard set, I, I switched topics because I thought I wanted to pick something that I thought was very appropriate for the life lessons that, that Rav Amital taught us. Um, Rav Yudha Amital, Rav Yudha Klein, was born in, um, in Hungary and ended up um, in the camps, mainly in a labor camp. And after liberation, made his way to Israel, ended up uh, as a yeshiva bacher, ended up... Um, joining and, and fighting in the nascent IDF uh, in Muhammad Tatsmaut, and then went on to continue to study and then became a Rebbe in, uh, in, in Rehovot, Yeshivat HaDarom. And um, after the 67 war, uh, there was a lot of interest in, uh, in certain parts of Israel that had been uh, that had been liberated and been reunited with the Jewish people uh, came immediately under our attention. And one of those areas for a lot of important historic reasons and strategic reasons and historic, ancient and historic recent uh, was Gush Etzion. And Rav Mital uh, set out to open up a yeshiva in the kibbutz Kfar Etzion. Uh, and he went and he he lobbied to get uh, to get guys who were coming from the top yeshiva high schools. At that time, the top yeshiva high school in the country was Nativ Meir in Yerushalayim, and he got a lot of that class to come. Uh, and they began with, I think, 30 guys in the first year. That ended up developing into the Hesda program, which I think we're all familiar with. And um, and Rav Mital was the Rosh Yeshiva, and it was a small yeshiva still in Kfar Etzion, and uh, I think a year later, there was approval to build a town uh, on a nearby uh, hill, uh, and the town was going to be named Alon Shavut, the Oak of Return, the famous oak tree that was all that what, that people were able to see for the 19 years that it was under Jordanian control. People were able to see, and every year on Yom Gush Etzion, they would assemble at Mavo Beitar, and they would look up and see that tree, and say, one day we're going to come back. And... Um, and so we returned, and so the town of Alon Shrut was built really around the yeshiva, and the yeshiva then moved into to Alon Shrut. But during, in 1970, um, and this is, this is a, a very illuminating story, I think I'll, I'll make it quick, but in 1970, um, the Rosh Kolel of uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Alpanen, uh, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who uh, was Rabbi Salvechik's son-in-law and was a brilliant Talmud Chacham and a brilliant Mike Shear. He had already gotten his doctorate from Harvard in, uh, in English Lit. Um, and uh, Rav Luchenstein and his wife, Tova, should live a long life and be healthy, um, were uh, decided to make the very difficult decision. And in 1970, it was extra difficult. 
the very difficult decision to make Aliyah. And Rav Lichtenstein um, ended up actually teaching in a number of the very new yeshivot that were there, uh, that were in Israel. He gave a shiur in Yeshiva Akoto, which was only a couple years old. And he came to visit this yeshiva in Kfar Etzion, And he met with Rav Mital and he asked him, this is how the, the apocryphal story goes. He asked him, what is the philosophy of this yeshiva? And Rav Mital said, I can't tell you the philosophy of the yeshiva, I can tell you a story. And the story tells you what the yeshiva is about. And this is the most famous story in Gush legend. And it's, uh, it's actually a story from the Balatanya, from the first Chabadsker. Uh, the story was that the uh, Balatanya was, he was a grandfather. He was studying in, in a room. And the room next to him, his son was studying. And in the room beyond that, that son's baby was in a crib, sleeping. And in the middle of learning, he heard crying, and he went through the room where his son was studying to the grandson. Grandson had woken up and fallen out of bed, so he picked him up, he comforted him, and he put him back. And then he turned to his son, who was still in the middle of learning, and he berated him. He said, your own child fell out of the bed. Why didn't you pick him up? He said, I didn't hear him. I was too engrossed in my learning. Ramital's statement was that if you're so engrossed in your own learning that you can't hear the cry of a baby, then that learning is not appropriate. And Romital turned to Rav Lichtenstein and said, that's the philosophy of this yeshiva. And according to the legend, it was obviously a lot more sophisticated than this. Rav Lichtenstein accepted Rav Mital's invitation. Rav Mital wanted him to come and be Rosh Yeshiva, and Rav Mital would step back and be Mashkiach. Uh, Rav Lichtenstein accepted it on one condition, which was that Rav Mital would remain as Rosh Yeshiva and they'd be partners. And you have to understand that with one exception that I know of, partner Rosh Yeshiva is something that didn't happen in Israel. There was one Rosh Hashiva. Hebron was the exception to that. There was one Rosh Hashiva, and everything else sort of evolved around that. And uh, to have partner Rosh Hashiva was really a remarkable thing. And for us as students, to watch the way that Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Oital, Zecher Tzadikim Livracha, would interact, would honor each other, would defer to each other, would respect each other's strengths, was, was marvelous. And hear the way that they spoke about each other. Uh, and the tremendous love and, and respect that they had for each other was a tremendous life lesson. And um, and so I think it's appropriate that we study this material in Rav Mital's memory. I still remember it was on a Friday morning, I believe, in 2010. Um, and uh, we got the news that Rav Mital had passed away. And, uh, but his memory, uh, that year, the Mayun was started the next Sunday. So the whole Mayun was during Shiva. And so every one of us who was teaching had stories to tell, and the shiurim were dedicated to Rav Mital. So in here on the 10th anniversary, we will similarly um, share uh, share some uh, some stories. Uh, we shared some stories. Now we're going to share some Torah that would um, that is appropriate. Give me one second to just get my page up here. Um, And here we go. Okay. Good. After all this time, still learning the tricks. All right. Um, I'd like to study a very well-known story. It's so well-known. I'd like to study with you a very well-known story. It's so well-known that people don't really necessarily catch it. The reason I say that is two things. First of all, as 
you all know, the better known a text is, the less it's understood. Because it's something that we all grew up with. We know it. We recite it. We review it. We hear it. And we don't take the time to actually look into detail because it's old hat. The second thing is that this particular story and its ilk have a built-in handicap. And that is the following. You know, we're not allowed to study Torah and Tisha B'Av because Tisha B'Av is a day where we, we act not only fasting, we act like mourners. And a mourner is not allowed to learn. But they tell a Jew not to, to spend 24 hours not learning Torah. That's like uh, telling a fish, you know, to hang out outside of the water for 24 hours. It's not going to happen. So the dispensation is that things that are appropriate for the day, we study. And so in many places, Tisha B'Av has turned into really kind of a study fest. Um, the Rav Zatzal used to give uh, keynote would last till five in the afternoon in Boston. And the Rav would be teaching keynote all afternoon, all day. Uh, there've been all sorts of, not exactly calling residence type things, but, but all sorts of opportunities to do all sorts of study, but the study relates to the day. And, and the permission is to study the book of Eov, which is very hard to study, even when you're not tired and hungry. And to study Yirmiyahu, but those passages in Yirmiyahu which are difficult, which are difficult, and to study Agadot relating to the Churban. So the truth is, we have lots of Agadot, lots of rabbinic legends relating to the Churban, to the destruction, but most of them are collected in a Haraba, and there is a relatively small, or focused collection in the fifth parak of Masechet Gitin, and because it's in the Gemara, it's more accessible. And so therefore, this has become a very popular thing to study. The only problem is people never study it any other time because it can be for Tishabab. And on Tishabab, and it's often studied in the late morning or in the afternoon, people are hungry, people are tired, people can't focus, people aren't necessarily catching all of the nuances of the story and pointing out some of the difficulties in the story. So we're going to do it today around lunch. It's a lunch and learn. Um, so, you know, if you, if you want to take something out and chew, that's fine. It's not Tishabab. But uh, and if it feels weird to be eating or drinking while you're studying Kamsa Bar Kamsa, it's it's Torah. We can study it. Okay, so let's take a look at the famous story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa, and here we go. It, this is the very beginning of the Agadic section. We're only doing the first little piece of it. What we're going to do is take a look at at the the story itself and ask questions along the way, and then we're going to look at uh, another version of the story, and I'll introduce it. And we're going to compare the versions and we'll see what the other version could teach us about ours and how it could help answer some of the questions. Okay. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Now, this is a classic uh, Agadic in introduction where a pasuk that has nothing to do with our context is evoked. This is kind of a, a Baal Midrash showing off his flair. Uh, a pasuk from some other context and then applying it to our story. So Amar Rabbi Yochanan, this is the great Rabbi Yochanan from Tiberia, died 299, to give us some context. So he says, what is the meaning of the Pasuk that says, happy is a man who's always afraid, and somebody who's stubborn will fall into trouble. Now, you, you expect now that he's going to tell you a story about somebody who either was always afraid and ended up having a happy life, or else somebody who was stubborn and ended up in trouble. So that's what we're waiting for, anticipatory reading. 
And the answer is three things. Akamtsa uvar kamtsa charuv Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was destroyed because of kamtsa and bar kamtsa. We got no idea what that means. Right? And kamtsa bar kamtsa doesn't mean anything. They're names. But what's obvious to us is the names are very close to each other. That'll play a role in the story. The second thing is Atanigola, Atanigolta, Charuv, Turmalka, the very famous Turmalka, which was a huge inhabited area, supposedly in the middle of Israel, uh, were, were destroyed because of a, a rooster and a hen. And Ashaka, Derisbach, Charuv, Beitar, the Beitar, the fort of Bar Kochba, which was destroyed in the year 135, was destroyed because of the, hand, the handle on a door on a carriage. All right, we're not going to look at those other two stories. That's why I made it small. And here, let's hear the story of Kamsa Bakamsa. Akamsa Bakamsa Harushlein. What's the story? Now, remember, what we're looking for is either somebody who is very frightened and very wary, and therefore he ends up happy. We don't think we're going to see that here because this is a story of destruction. So what we're now geared to is to find somebody who is very stubborn, and his stubbornness is going to lead to something terrible. All right, so let's look for the stubborn guy. Akamsa Bakamsa Harushlein. What's the story? There was a guy, he liked, literally he loved, Kamsa. His enemy was Bar Kamsa. Okay, so now, there's a fellow, we'll call him Mike. Mike has a friend named Kamsa, and Mike happens to not like Bar Kamsa, really dislikes Bar Kamsa. And by the way, so far, do we see anything wrong? I don't think so. It's okay to not like everybody. Okay. Avad Sudata. So Mike, the guy, made a, made a feast, a big party. Amarli Lashame, he told his servant, Zil Aitili Kamsa. Now, a little context here. We are accustomed now to getting every invitation in email. We get invitations via Evite, paperless post, you name it, and snail mail is a thing of the past. Back, way back in the last decade, we used to get things called invitations in the mail with a little card called an RSVP. Maybe you guys remember it. You'd fill it out. You'd mail it back. Okay. But way back before the 20th century, actually, in the times of Chazal, the custom was that you would send a servant out with a list, and he'd go house to house and say, you're invited, you're invited, like that. Truth is that in Yeshiva, we did the same thing. When a guy was gotten married in Yeshiva, and by the way, the whole winter in yeshiva, at least in Israel, um, probably three nights a week there was a wedding. He was talking about a yeshiva of 500 guys, 300 of whom are in that age, and so there's been a lot of weddings. And, you know, a bus would pull up at 6 o'clock, people would quickly run, put on a white shirt, run into the bus, go to the thing, the bus would pull in at 12 o'clock from the wedding, they'd come in, learn for an hour, and go back to go to sleep. But weddings, and the way that you're invited to a wedding is people would come up to you and say, oh, you're invited to the wedding next Tuesday night. You're invited. They wouldn't even ask, are you coming? You're invited. And there'd be a huge table for all the yeshiva guys, and you were there, you're not there. So they did the same thing, um, that uh, he told his servant, zil aiti le kamsa, go bring kamsa to my party. Azal aiti le bar kamsa. What did the servant do? He brought bar kamsa. Now, why did he bring bar kamsa? So you, you can actually send this by chat. What do you think? Why would he bring Bar Kamsa? So one of the first thing that comes to mind would be that he made a mistake, which means so far there's no bad guy. There's just, unfortunately, a thing happened. Okay. 
Is there any poss- other possible reason why he would maybe deliberately bring Barakamsa? So while you're writing your answers, I feel like Alex Trebek here, but while you're writing your answers, um, I'll tell you some a few things that I've heard. One thing that I heard that I thought was a good suggestion was that the servant was trying to make shalom. And he figured that if he brought Barakamsa to the feast, the host would have no choice but to accept him. And after a while, he would make up with him. The other possibility, though, is that he was actually trying to destroy the feast. And he decided to bring his hosts, his bosses, sworn enemy to the feast in order to torpedo things. All right. So we don't yet know if we found a stubborn person, but very likely uh, you could maybe think about the servant. Okay, we'll see. So the host walked into his party. And by the way, when is this happening? This is not happening in the year 69. There are no parties going on in Yerushalayim in the year 69. A year before the destruction, there's a, there's a siege going on. There's a famine going on. Later on in the Gemara, they tell stories about how the zealots burned down the storehouses, driving the famine even worse. There were no parties going on. This party is going on a number of years before the destruction. So, Bar- so Mike, the host, walked into the party and he saw Barkamsa sitting there. Amarle, it's very funny because he's going to say a terrible thing, but he's going to say it all in the third person, like you're talking to somebody of great honor. Since this man is the enemy of that man, basically says, since I hate your guts, my bite, what are you doing here? Now, question we have to ask here is, is the host saying this out loud in front of everybody, saying, you're my enemy, what are you doing at my table? Or did he come up and say it privately to him? We don't know. We'll be able to figure it out from the story, maybe. It says, kum puk, get up and leave. So Marle, Barkamsa said to the host, ho il va'atai shavkan, I'm already here, let me stay. Now, what was Barkamsa trying to avoid? Was he trying to avoid uh, having to go home and not make dinner? Doesn't seem like it from his answer. So it seems like he's trying to avoid embarrassment. Don't embarrass me, also, which means that it sounds like the host came over to him quietly or sent a message quietly saying, get out. Because otherwise, you look foolish. Somebody's yelling at you, get out of my house and say, please let me stay. You really look foolish. But it, it's not clear. And Barkamsa offers, I will pay for what I eat and drink. Now, what would be the value of that? The value would be that the host doesn't have to feel like he gave his enemy any food. You didn't feed me at all. All right, I've paid for my own food. Now, Amar Lelo, the host says no. The host turns down the deal. Now, who's being stubborn here? So on the one hand, you could say, Barkamsa's being stubborn. He knows he's not wanted, and he's insisting on staying. On the other hand, you could say, the host is being stubborn. He said, look, this happened. Be flexible. No, he can't believe. So watch how both of their stubbornnesses uh, keep uh, keep getting driven driven up. Um, right, good. Okay, Rabbi Avram, you asked a great question. How come the rabbis know this story and don't say anything? We're going to find out that their role here is way bigger than we thought. Very good. So now, now this is like an unbelievable deal. This guy's making a huge party for everybody. And Barkamsa evidently quietly says to him, I will pay for half the feast, half the party. 
meaning just don't throw me out. Now, the advantage to the host is great. I just paid for half a party. I get credit for a whole party. The disadvantage is now I'm his partner. Together we're hosting a party. Even though nobody knows it, I know it. Amarle, low. The host says no. Now, you understand how the stubbornness factor is rising on both sides. Amarle, Now, this is really nuts. Barkamsa says, I will pay for the entire feast. Just don't throw me out. Amarle, low. He said no. Now, it seems like everybody's being stubborn here. The host seems to be really kind of capping it out on stubbornness, but now the host picks Barkamtz up with his hands, picks him up, and he throws him out. I've actually seen this happen once where a fellow um, threw somebody out of his house, physically threw him out of the house. I'd never seen it otherwise, but that's what happened here. He picks Barkamtz up and throws him out of the house. Okay, now you're Barkamtsa. What do you do? I'm the host messed up. The host is terrible. The host is stubborn. is inflexible. You're Barkamtsa. What do you do? So hopefully you say, you know what? I put him into a bad situation and he felt bad. No, what does Barkamtsa do? Amar. Now watch what Barkamtsa does. And this reminds you of the very famous adage of Menachem Begin. Uh, if you remember in 1982, the terrible massacre at Sabah Shatila happened. Uh, in uh, in June, I think it was, where the phalangists went into the Palestinian refugee camp and Christians murdered Muslims, basically. And we ended up, uh, because our army knew about it, whatever it may be, it was a commission of inquiry, um, but uh, Menachem Megan's famous line was, the Muslims kill the Christians and everybody blames the Jews. It's almost like a line out of Tom Lehrer. But that's what happens here. Barkamtsa gets thrown up by the host. The host is a regular guy, obviously a wealthy guy. The rabbis were sitting here. This is what Abraham asked me for. The rabbis were sitting here, which means this meal included rabbis. It was a rabbi's table, right? Must mean that they were comfortable with this, meaning the rabbis saw me get thrown out and publicly shamed, and they don't mind. Which is an idiom for saying, I'm going to go and rat on them to the king. Now, the king doesn't mean the king because you don't go from Jerusalem to Rome. It means he's going to go to Caesarea, to the prefect of Judea, the Roman governor, and he's going to say something bad about the rabbis. Now, notice, he's angry at the rabbis. The host insulted him, he's angry at the rabbis. This gets weirder. So far, by the way, we have several questions. First question is, is on both people's behavior, but okay, they're stubborn. But second is, why is he blaming the rabbis here? All right, we'll see. So he comes to the Caesar. Caesar here again means the prefect, and he says, the Jews are rebelling against you. Now remember, Rome controlled Judea from 69 BCE all the way, and certainly from 37 BCE when Herod ascended to the throne, all the way to the end. But it was pretty much benign, and they allowed us to continue with Korbanot and to continue with, with uh, Limud Torah, etc. And so he comes to the Caesar and says, the Jews are rebelling against you. Amar mi Amar. Now, by the way, you're going to see something interesting. The only sane guy in the whole story is the Roman governor. Amar mi Amar. He said, who said? Meaning, I don't believe you. Now, here's a Jew coming and ratting on other Jews, and the Roman governor says, I don't believe you. So Amarle, now by the way, remember, the Roman governor is skeptical, which makes this next, this next piece very odd. 
Shanda Luhu Korbana. So Barkamsa says to the governor, send them a korban. See if they offer it. Now, a little context here. First of all, the halacha is clear that non-Jews may send korbanot to the Beit HaMikdash. Only olot. The second thing is that Pax Romana, Roman, the Roman peace, the Roman conquest strategy or occupation strategy was to allow other cultures to continue unless it became a problem and to honor the local deities, both as a way of making peace with the people, but also because if you're a pagan, you believe that, you know, this every, every commotion is powerful in Moab and Milcom is powerful in uh, in, in Ammon, and Aten is powerful in Egypt, and Yud Kevavke is powerful in Jerusalem. So you want to make nice, so bring a korban. Now, by the way, if you bring a korban, typically the local functionaries who are part of that religion are going to offer it. They're going to offer it for you, and it's going to show that they respect you and they love you because they want their God to like you. It's kind of a, a very strong, here's a, a weak contemporary example, is the prayer for the state, uh, for the uh, government is, you know, you're demonstrating that we, as religious Jews, want to see the government uh, succeed. Okay. So now, what will happen if the Jews refuse to offer up the Caesar's Corbin? That would mean that they're rebelling, because they're trying to get their God against you, or not give your God, do any favor with your God. Okay? So, this would be the test. Now, remember, the Roman governor is the guy who does not trust, or not to believe, Bar he says, I don't believe you. So watch what happens. So the governor sends with Barkamtsa alone a fat calf. Eglatilta literally means a third calf. It may be the third of the litter. Um, it may be a third of its way of maturity. But whatever, it's a fat calf. Really nice carbon. While he was on the way, Barkamtsa, knowing the Jewish law, made a slit on the lip of the of the animal, the or in the sclera of the eye. Now, why are those important? First of all, the simple explanation is because you can hardly see them. But the Gemara gives a different explanation. Because the Romans don't think that's a mum, which means if you come to the Roman temple with an animal with a split lip, they'll offer it up. So they don't know that it's a mum. If you think about how strange a, a, a statement that is, the Romans also offer their korbanot on Saturday. We don't. Voluntary korbanot. So the rules are different. The Romans also don't have a kohen who's not tome at the, at the Mizbeach, and we do. So the rules are different. So why wouldn't they recognize that? So what happened? He walks in with this korban, and he says, I'm representing the Roman government. Here's a korban. Now, watch, now by the way, when you come to your shalim with a korban, who do you bring it to for checking? You would assume you bring it to the Kohanim. Kohanim aren't here in this story. It's very strange. Savura Banan, the rabbis gather, which is not their place. Le Karuve, they thought, let's offer it up anyways, Mishum Shlom Malchut, to keep peace with the government. In other words, we should offer up this Korban, even though it's got technically a blemish, because if we don't, the Romans are going to be mad at us, and it's not good to have the Romans mad at us. Okay, and the rabbis are about to do that. Amarlohu Rabbi Zacharia ben Avkulas, a particular rabbi Zacharia ben Avkulas. By the way, how many who's ever heard of Rabbi Zacharia ben Avkulas? You're right, none of you. 
shows up one other time in all of Gemara, uh, actually Masachet Shabbat, in the context of Muktzah. That's it. He's not a well-known character. So that raises another question, which is, why is his say, saying his statement going anywhere? So, oh, we can't offer up this split-lip animal because then people will think you could bring a blemished animal to the to the mizbeach. Okay, so now what do they say? They said, okay, let's kill bar kamsa. Now, by the way, how's killing bar kamsa going to accomplish anything? If the Romans say we sent a Jew with an offering and the Jews killed him, that's certainly going to be a rebellion. So that would that sounds like a strange kind of solution. You don't want to offer the korban, deal with the consequences, but killing Bar Kamsa is not going to help. The low ways of Alema, that he shouldn't go back and tell. Well, we have to assume that there's other people around that are going to know what's happening. Amalur B'Zachayus, this B'Zachay ben Avkula speaks up again. Yomru metil mum b'kod shimi Oh, people will think that you're, that you have the death penalty for making a mum in Kodshim. In other words, making a mum on an animal that's supposed to be brought to the Mizbeach carries the death penalty. And that's not true. So Bizachai ben Avkulas is, is concerned with what people will say about Korbanot. And as a result of that, what happens? They let Barkamtsa go back with the animal, not offered up. And the rest of the Gemara goes on to say, and then the Romans came and attacked and destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, of course, years later. You understand that this is very difficult. It's difficult on a whole lot of levels. But notice what the Gemara, the conclusion, of our Rabbi Yochanan, this is Rabbi Yochanan who we started with. In v'tanu tosh Rabbi Zechari ben Avkulas, this is a very weird phrase, anava means humility. It's Rabbi Zechari ben Avkulas' humility, hechrivat beitenu v'safat echelenu v'tanu me'artzenu, destroyed our house, burnt our temple, and exiled us from our land. It was all his humility. Now, I have four questions here, but the truth is that there's way more questions. One question is, why are we listening to B'zachar of Kulas? Parenthetically, important to note, the word ukolos in Greek means knucklehead, like stubborn, hard-headed. So there may be something there. Why are we listening to him? Why is his, his word carrying the day? Second of all, how is his behavior considered humility? That's weird. You could say his stubbornness. Uh, you could say his timing, but his, his humility? How does his humility lead to the, this destruction? All right? There's a whole lot of difficulties with this story. Um, and the bottom line is, really, what's the message here? What is the message of this story? Is the message of this story that we should be more flexible with Korbanot? That's kind of hardly a message to take for generations. Is the message that we should be more flexible with the law and take into account political considerations? I'm not sure that's a message we necessarily subscribe to. Certainly not in most cases. Is the message about baseless hatred? Well, the reason that we think it's about baseless hatred, and again, remember, we usually learn this story in Tishvav when we're not able to focus well. That's why I wanted to do it today is people think this is a story about Sinat Chinam, about baseless hatred, for a simple reason. That when the Gemara in Yoma, Daftet, says the first Beit HaMikdash had Avodah Zarah, Gilur, Areot, that's basically Menashe's period. As a result, it was destroyed. But the second Beit HaMikdash, where people were careful, there was no more Avodah Zarah, and they were, all of those things are not exactly the case, but it was a lot better. Why, why did they die? And the answer is Sinat Chinam. 
the, the reality is that there's at least 20 different answers that Chazal give why the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, theological answers, besides the obvious historic political answer that you don't pick a fight with the Romans and, and expect to win. But um, there's a whole number, a bunch of answers. The most famous one is Sinat Chinam. And a bunch of the other words kind, kind of come under the rubric of baseless hatred. So we think this story is about baseless hatred. But is it? Because it wasn't the host's hatred for Barkamtsa that led to this. What was it? Barkamtsa didn't walk out of the party saying, I hate that guy because he embarrassed me. I'm going to get him. What did he say? He said, the rabbis were sitting there and they didn't say anything. I'm going to get them. Now, the interesting thing is, he thinks that by getting the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, or to at least think there's a rebellion that they're going to put down, he's getting back at the rabbis. Why does he think that? Unclear. Maybe because he thought the Romans would take it out on the leadership? Unclear. We have to remember, we're looking at Talmud Bavli. We're looking at Talmud Bavli. Now, even though this entire story is enveloped in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, and Rabbi Yochanan is the only narrator here, Rabbi Yochanan starts out the story by quoting a pasuk in Mishlei and then saying what it refers to and then tells the whole story. And then at the end of the story, Rabbi Yochanan sums it up and says it was the humility, again, we have to see what that is about, Zechariah ben Kulas destroyed our temple. There are a whole host of questions on this. But this is a Babylonian story that, that was originally an Eretz Yisrael story, Rabbi Yochanan of Eretz Yisrael, but now it's, ha- it's being retold. It's being retold a few generations later and in a different place. That doesn't mean a whole lot until we turn the page. And we turn the page and we come to Midrash Rabba Echa. Right? Now, the, the book of Echa, Lamentations, five chapters, very, very powerful. The imagery is, um, is, is tragic. And it's tragic in, in, a, in at once depressing and, and at the same time uplifting way. The, the, as, as a piece of literature, it's just, it's, it's, it's unmatched. And Eicha, of course, was composed, at least the first four prakim were composed by Yirmiyahu um, in, the, in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The last chapter was probably composed a generation later. And that's Yirmiyahu. The Midrash that developed after Bar Kokhba, which is really when things went down, when the, when the sense of, of, of long exile kind of set in, the Midrashim <clears throat> that start then were collected in a collection called Midrash Echa. Midrash on Echa. Midrash on Echa takes the psukim that are about Bait Rishon, about the first temple, and then it interprets them about Bayacheni and about Betar, about everything from before the year 70 all the way through the year 135 with the destruction of Betar. Uh, Midrash Echarabe is, is, is eloquent beyond words. It is stunning. Uh, I recommend everybody to spend some time studying Midrash Echa, if possible, uh, in, the, uh, in the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, and as painful as Eicha is, Midrash Eicha is even more painful. Uh, some of the most beautiful Midrashim, including some very well-known Midrashim, we saw one last week, come from Midrash Eicha, including from the 27 proems, the Ptichtaot in Eicha Rabbah. But this one is actually on Perak Dalad, uh, which 
which start which the second pasuk of Parak Dalad is Benet Sion Hamasula Imbapaz. The young men of Sion who used to be coated in gold are now begging for food out in the streets and, and dying of starvation in the streets. By the way, when you study, when you read Eicha, the book Eicha, you'll see that very little of Eicha is about the Beit HaMikdash. Almost everything in Eicha is about the city and more than that about the people. About the people dying, about the people starving, about the people being let out in captivity. Um, it's, it's very painful, but it's more to notice where the focus is. All right, now, we're going to read the story, and you tell me if the sounds, story sounds familiar. Uh, remember, we're talking about the young men and their gold. So it's telling stories about the big parties in Yerushalayim. Ma'as, by the way, Echaraba is a fourth century work. It's a very, one of the earliest Midrashic collections that we have. Uh, that's not to say that it wasn't edited later on, but that's, it's, the compilation is earlier, which means it's before Talmud Babli and it's local, which means it's happening in um, almost all the Midrashay uh, Tuvim are Eretz and this is an absolute Eretz um Compilation and, and creation. Okay, Masashaya Badamachad Yerushalayim. Notice, by the way, at the beginning it starts in Hebrew. It's going to leave. Shasasuuda. Tell me if this sounds familiar. There was a story about a guy in Yerushalayim that made a feast. Amar Leven Beto. He said to his houseboy, Lech Vehaveli Kamsa Rachami. Go bring me Kamsa, my friend. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like the same story? Now, by the way, in another version of it, this guy is actually called Barkamsa, the friend. Barkamsa, or in that other version, Barkamsura. Either way, the point is that he brought somebody who had a very similar name, Sane, his enemy. Sound so far like the same story, right? Okay. So we'll call him Barkamsa, comes and sits with the rest of the guests. Al Aristaya. So the this is now Palestinian Hebrew, by the way, uh, Aramaic, not Babylonian. So the words are not as familiar. The host came in and found Bar Kamsa sitting among the guests. Amarlo Atsani, you are my enemy. You're sitting in my house. Get up and leave my house. And again, we don't know if this is private or out loud. It's pretty clear that it's private because he says Amarlo, and now he says it explicitly in this version, Al Tivaisheni, do not embarrass me. I'll pay you the value of my meal. Amarle lo late The host says, You do not recline here. You do not eat here. Now remember in our version, the next thing up from paying for my meal was pay for half the feast. Not here. Amarlo Altavaisheni. So Barkamsa says again, don't embarrass me. I'll sit here and I won't eat or drink. I will sit here and clearly look like I don't belong. I won't eat or drink anything. Amarlo late at You don't sit here. Amarle Ana We come to the same end point, which is I'll pay for the whole feast. Amarle Kumlach. Get up and leave. Now, here he doesn't pick him up and, and force him out, which makes it sound like maybe this one was happening out loud. When he says, get up and leave, he has no choice. Now, watch this. Who was at the party? He had the ability to, re, to, uh, to rebuke, meaning he could have gotten up and said to the host, don't embarrass this guy, let him stay. The low micha, he did not say anything. 
the rabbi had the power because of his personality, because of his position, to stop this public shaming, and he did nothing. All right? Miyad nafikle. So now, Bar leaves. Amar ben he said to himself, Elaine misavyan yatvin mishalvaton. These people are sitting, having a great time. And I'm going to go rat on them. So now he's not saying I'm going to get the rabbis. He's not angry at the rabbis. He's angry at everybody at the feast. They're all having a great time. They saw me be shamed. They didn't say anything. They're all fine with it. I'm going to get them. All right? Now, by the way, Zechai ben Avkulas here, what's his role? His role is to sit at the party and not say anything. In the first story, his role was to sit in the Sanhedrin and say too much. All right? Now watch. Ma'avad, what did he do? Halach shilton. He went to the governor. Amarlo, Elaine korbanaya dan mishalach liyudai. He doesn't start by saying the Jews are rebelling. He goes straight to the point. All these korbanot that you send to the Jews, l'nikravinu, to offer up, lahon. The Jews eat them. They offer other ones in their place. In other words, you send with your messenger. And your messenger is not Jewish, so he can't go in. He sends an animal in. And what they do is they kill the animal properly, but not as a Corbin, and they eat it. And they offer another animal in its place. So you see the smoke going up. You know, that's what your fellow reports to you. But guess what? They didn't offer it for you. They're rebelling against you. Nazaf Bey, and again, the governor is the only guy who's, who's got his head on his shoulders. He gets angry at Bar Kamsa. And he doesn't believe him. Azal the Gabe too. He comes back the next day. He says the same argument. And if you don't believe me, so remember what's going to happen. Now this is critical. Send a cop with me, an officer with me, and a bunch of korbanot. I'm not a liar. Now, by the way, this version is, makes a lot more sense. In the first version, Barkamtsa went alone. Remember, the governor doesn't trust Barkhan, doesn't believe him. So why would he trust him to say they didn't offer the korban? But in this story, Barkhamsa, knowing he's not trusted, says, send an officer with me. We'll go together. I'll bring korbanot in your name. They won't, they won't offer them. The officer will come back and verify that I'm telling the truth. And you'll see that the Jews aren't, are rebelling. So what happened? Ada Atya Ba'orcha. On the way, the cop went to sleep, took a nap. Evidently, this is at night. I slept at night. So it was a two-day trip. I'm not sure why it's a two-day trip from Kesar to Yushalayim, but it went slow. Barkamsa got up in the middle of night. What did he do? He cut every one of these animals, but somewhere that you couldn't see. It's not a technical issue of the Romans don't consider them. That's not, that doesn't make sense. He said he cut them in a way that nobody could see. So the, the cop wouldn't see that they were balimum, like comes in behind the knee or something that he wouldn't be able to see. Now remember, when you come to Yishalayim, who do you go to? You don't go to the rabbis, you go to the Kohen. So they went to the Kohen, the Kohen saw it. And what happened? And there's no discussion of perhaps let's. Rather, he the Kohen offered other animals in place of these. Exactly, by the way, like Barkamsa said the Jews are doing. So the cop said, Why aren't you offering these korbanot that we brought? Come back tomorrow. It's like the Wizard of Oz. 
So he came the next, finally the third day he came below Karvenun. For three days they didn't offer their offerings. Shalach ba'amar lamalka ha'hu milta kushta He said, you know what? What that Jew said is true. Now, how did Bar Kamsa manipulate this? Bar Kamsa made all of them balimum, but the, but the, uh, the officer didn't know it. The Kohanim were evidently embarrassed to say to the officer, you're sending us unfit korbanot. They didn't want to say that. So they figured if they keep offering, he'll get bored, he'll go home. It will be okay. But he wasn't because he was there. They didn't know that he was there to actually see whether they'd offer him or to substantiate Barkamsa's claim that they're offering other ones. It was substantiated. And what happened? Miyad salik So the Romans came and destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. Now, Miyad is a, is a push. It wasn't immediate, but point is that that led to the to the Churban. Now, Hadad Briyati Amrin, that's the famous statement that people make. Remember, in the first two gathers, this is at the beginning. Ben Kamsa, Ben Bar Kamsa, Charuv Miktasha. In other words, what we have here is an etiology. An etiology is a backstory. There was a famous saying that people had, which was, the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed because of the Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. In other words, like the smallest difference between Two names destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. Now you want to know what that's about? It's not. It's a really about a guy named Kamsa Bar Kamsa. And here's the backstory. And it was, now, what was it about? So let's see the last line. Amar Rabbi Yossi. In v'tanu tosha b'zachari v'navkula sarfat ha'ichal. Remember, we had this at the end of the previous one, Rabbi Yochan's name. What does Rabbi Yossi say? Zachari v'navkula says humility destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. Now, what kind of humility are we talking about? We're not talking about Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulas speaking up in the Beitin, and we ask, why is anybody even listening to him? You've got Rabbi Yochan and Zakkai there. You've got Meshim and Gamliel there. You've got huge rabbis there. Why is this unknown Zechariah ben Avkulas saying something and carrying the day? But now, what are we angry at him for? We're angry at him not for his halachic opinion, but for his refusal to get involved and to correct people's behavior. What was his humility? His humility was, who am I to get up and tell this guy how to behave? I'm just uh, Rabbi Zechariah. Who am I to, to go up and try to keep this guy from shaming somebody? And Rabbi Yossi blames him and says, it was his anava, and by the way, he's going to say it in quotes, his humility, as it were, that destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. So what's this story really about? The story's really about a failure of rabbinic leadership. It's not about the census hatred. It's not even about stubbornness. It's about a failure of rabbinic leadership when they see that the way people are interacting, not about ritual stuff, about interpersonal stuff, when they see the people, the way people are treating each other and they have the opportunity, because people will listen to them, to step in and say, take it easy on the guy. Don't throw the guy out. Let the guy stay. Let's not have any, let's have a nice time. Let's not embarrass anybody. Embarrassing is like murdering somebody. How, whatever it is, the rabbi's good, but the rabbi could have done it. And the rabbi stepping back and thinking he isn't big enough. He thinks he's small in his own eyes, like Shmuel says to Shaul. But Rosh Yisrael Atta, you're really a leader. You have to act like a leader. That's what this story is about. We have to look at the earlier version of the story that's closer both in time and in place to where the story happened. And the Eretz Yisrael Midrash from the 4th century, or possibly earlier, that 
tells us what happened. And the critical piece of it is the role of Zachary ben Avkulas, who in the Babylonian story, everything about him is strange. In this story, suddenly it fits in. And notice that the Midrash in Perak Aleph of Eicharava has a very powerful statement about this entire this issue. Kachayu, source three. Kachayu gdolei Yisrael ro'in dvar ve'rav ofchim pre'emimenu. The leaders, the gdolei Yisrael, the rabbinic leaders, would see a sin happening and they'd turn away. They wouldn't look. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. They wouldn't get involved. said to them, You know what? The time will come, I'll do the same thing. I'll see you being brutalized and I'll turn away. I'll see you being oppressed and I'll turn away. I will see the Romans coming to burn down the Mikdash and I'll turn away because you turned away. There is a, a theme here which we're not that familiar with, but it's a theme that courses through several Midrashim, which is that it's specifically laid at the feet of the leadership and the rabbinic leadership the responsibility for maintaining proper interpersonal relations and a failure to do so is what led to the Chorban. Remember I told you that there were 20 different reasons given why the Mikdash was destroyed. Um, um, the One of them is the following in Bab Metziah towards the end of uh, the second parak. Again, Rabbi Yochanan. He says, Yerushalayim was destroyed because they judged based on the Torah. That's a crazy statement. You want them to use the, the Habari law, the, the, the Zoroastrian law? What law should they use? It's not that the judges judge based on Torah. That's correct. It's that the litigants stood on their rights. Meaning? They would not be flexible. They wouldn't say, okay, you know, this guy's poor. <clears throat> yes, he owes me $100, but I can live without the $100. You know what? We'll let it go. We'll let it go. People stood on their rights, demanded that they get their proper due, even when it didn't serve the larger cause of justice, and that was the model de Torah, and not And that's what led to the Chorban. So there's a question of interpersonal flexibility. There's a question of, uh, of rabbinic responsibility and leadership that really are sitting at the core of the story. Kurt asked a very good question, which is, back in the Babylonian story, uh, in the Babylonian version, Rabbi Yochanan introduces the whole story, which means Rabbi Yochanan told the story this way, introducing it with, Here's what happened. Rabbi Yochanan said one thing. What does this pasuk refer to? And he said three things. It refers to Kamsa Bar Kamsa, Tanego and Tanegolta, and Shaka de Rispak. That's it. That's what he told. Now the Gemara then goes and says, what did he mean, Kamsa Bar Kamsa? And so the Gemara goes on to it, which means Rabbi Yochanan had a drasha, we had a pasuk in Mishle, and says, I will find you a contemporary ex- example of how that pasuk plays out. In every case, people were stubborn, and because they were stubborn, it led to this problem. Now, um, the Gemara then, the Bavli then goes on and tells the whole story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa in a reworked version that, as we see, has a Rizchayim and Avkulas pulled from one role to the other, and that leaves us with a lot of gaps. It has Bar Kamsa coming alone with a Korban, which leaves us with a lot of gaps. It has Bar Kamsa reasoning and doing the Mum to be sort of strange. So we go back to the original story, and we see very likely what it is that, that exactly happened. Uh, Professor Lyman, uh, I remember years ago hearing him make a comment about this story, 
is there's a lot of things that are unlikely about this story. Certainly in the Babylonian version, as we saw, a lot of things that are unlikely. First of all, the, in both versions, the feast happens just before the Chorban, because it's Barkamsa's behavior that leads to the Chorban Miyad. And like we said, there's no feasting going on in the few years before the, because the Jewish revolt started in 66. Nobody's feasting at that time. Um, he suggested, and just something to, to think about, that this may be uh, another example of a rabbinic response, a very subtle rabbinic response to early Christianity. Um, you have to remember that in early Christianity, the destruction of the Mikdash plays a critical role, a central role, because in, from their perspective, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was a uh, confirmation of divine disfavor with the Jewish people and divine anger over the fact that Jewish people did not accept the great gift of, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and that's part of the reason why we emphasize that the destruction of the Mikdash, and I'll tell you one other story related to that, are due to our own sins, our own interpersonal failures and the failures of our leadership, and not because of some theological uh, oddness that we did not uh, that we did not fall for. Um, he made the same argument. I think it's a very compelling argument about the midrash of the Asara Haruge Malchut, which we're going to read on Tisha B'Av, Arzeil uh, the martyrs. Because if you read the story of the martyrs, it sounds like it all happened in a few days. Those martyrs didn't even live at the same time. But the story is put together, again, to talk about the, the guilt carried that led to that punishment being the internal guilt of the way, the way we treat each other. Remember, the whole cause in that Midrash that led to the killing of the martyrs was the sale of Yosef. So it's an, it's an important recurring theme, but that's a separate topic, um, not, not the one that we're uh, focused on, but I just wanted to, to, uh, to share that. So, Bill, I'm glad you're able to join us. Um, and so Bill asks, what's the primary takeaway from the story? From this particular story, I think there's a few lessons. I think one lesson is the, the real critical importance of, of flexibility and the ability to roll with the punches. And even when things don't play out the way that you hope that they would play out, to be able to rise above it and to do the right thing. And Barkamtsa in this story should have very quietly excused himself. First of all, I should have asked, is I really invited? The guy doesn't like me. And when the minute he saw things weren't that way, he should have said, I need to go to the bathroom, left and not come back. The host in the meantime should have said, well, he's already here. Let him stay. I'm not going to embarrass him. You know, later on, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him privately. We'll figure it out. In other words, that's an important piece of lesson. But the, the Eretz Israel story teaches a whole different lesson, which is that not only rabbis, but many people, and I think it's true about everybody sitting around this virtual table, has the ability to be an inspiring leader who can help correct people and lead them to do things in a better way. And the shyness or the humility or the self-effacing attitude, which says, who am I, ver binich, to do that is, is not only not called for, I mean, it depends on the circumstance, but sometimes can be ruinous. Sometimes you have an opportunity really to save a situation and you have to be able to step in. And remember that the uh, very famous, the, um, the last Mishnah in Sota has that whole list of when this Chacham died, it was the end of this Midah. And when, when Rebbe died, it was the end of Anava. So Rabbi Yosef says, Don't say Anava, humility is gone, I'm here. And you can say, how can anybody say humility is not gone because I'm here? Because humility doesn't mean thinking you're nothing. Humility means that you know who you are. 
And if you're somebody who other people look up to, then you're somebody who should be able to step in and to, and to, to respond. Dan asks a very good question. He says, are we still paying the prices for their actions today? Well, in a great sense, yes. And, but that's always true, always true in history, is that whenever a particular generation bollocks things up in whatever way, then it leaves a reality in the world. And the rest of history, to some extent, those, those threads are still there. We do everything we can to pick up those threads. But that's the way that the world works. You know, the, the, the Chazal, and it, it seems pretty, pretty, pretty much shot in the, in the Torah, that the Chet HaEgel is something that reverberates through the generations and that we still have responsibility for. But certainly, besides that, when there's bad interpersonal relations, it creates a reality. And we have to turn that reality over and always be vigilant that that reality can be possible, whether it's publicly shaming people or whether it's getting angry at people or distancing people or whatever it may be. We have to be ever vigilant and, and know that that's part of our history and therefore we have to constantly be correcting it. So hopefully that helps. Um, um, yeah, and just to finish off, Kurt makes an excellent point, which is that sometimes very small differences can explode. And you have to have enough seichel to step back and say, what are we fighting about? <laughs> fighting about Geshem and Gashem? That's what we're fighting about. So you say Geshem, I say Gashem, and let's not call anything off. How's that? Um, okay, in any, in any case, we, uh, we spent, this is a long, very long shiur today, but uh, we spent um, uh, good, a goodly amount of time. Hopefully uh, it was uh, enjoyable in studying um, Kamsa Bar Kamsa. And studying in memory of Lorena Arab Yehuda, Ben Harav Yakuti Elzev, and Dvorah Klein, but his name was Amital, uh, he's the Chorob 